Hello and good day to you, everyone joining us to listen to this podcast. This is the Presbytery of Detroit's Young Adult Podcast. I'm Pastor Charles Sadler out of Star Presbyterian Church, and I'm joined today with a good friend of mine, Joe Sheeran. Hey, thanks for having me. It's good to be here. It's good to have you here. And for this specific podcast, we wanted to talk about political frameworks in the church and specifically how they relate to young adults. And I've invited Joe to talk on this podcast because I believe one, he's got a lot of good things to say about it and a lot of good experience related to it. And two, he is technically a young adult in the Presbytery Detroit. So Joe, why don't you introduce yourself? What makes you a young adult in this Presbytery and talk about a little bit about your experience of being in this Presbytery? Sure. I'm not and not entirely sure I remember what the parameters was, but I'm, I'm 32 and uh, I'm a child of the Presbytery of Detroit. I grew up here, faith community in Novi, and, you know, was, I'm under care there still, uh, still looking for that, that first call. Um, and uh, for everyone wondering how we can be good friends, I did a CPE at uh, clinical pastoral education at Beaumont Royal Oak shortly after Chuck had finished his and he was still kind of hanging out, waiting for waiting to see what the next thing was going to be for him. And so we overlapped in that way. In terms of my, my political experience, so after growing up here and um, going, going away to school and having a few adventures, I ended up doing something, doing, doing something kind of like YAV, Young Adult Volunteers, called Episcopal Service Corps in hmm. uh, Boston, Massachusetts, and um, was assigned to work on a, on a campaign to uh, do two things. Uh, one, uh, increase the uh, minimum wage in Massachusetts. It was uh, $8. Uh, it is, it, what they were aiming for was ten fifty. It actually ended up being um, $11. But, uh, and then the other piece of it was, it was going to uh, create a, a standard whereby everyone in any kind of part-time or full-time employment could earn uh, sick days, right? Mm. So, it, you know, it didn't, it was going to be a mandatory benefit that every person in Massachusetts was going to have. And both those campaigns were uh, ultimately successful. That that success, uh, of course, was, was moderated or, or impacted by the uh, legislative and electoral process um, without getting too much into the weeds. You know, some things got tweaked and didn't end up being quite what we wanted. Uh, but that was my first experience. And then I, after that year, uh, went to Vanderbilt Divinity School to pursue my MDiv as part of the ordination process uh, for, for our, our denomination. And in Nashville, which is where Vanderbilt is, uh, I really took off uh, as a, a local and state level political consultant. And, you know, not everything I did with political campaigns, some of it was uh, working with uh, labor or working with community groups, uh, neighborhood groups, but a lot of how I paid my rent during <laughs> seminary was uh, just straight up trying to get people elected, trying to get something on the ballot. And so it was just really interesting context uh, to be in because Nashville, uh, unlike the Detroit area, Nashville is a, a, a relatively blue city in a robustly red state um mm. you know mm. michigan it's um you know it's a it's a blue city a lot of most of 
almost the entirety of, of rural Michigan is, is pretty solidly Republican. Um, but there's, there's, there's a lot, lot more different pockets of, of blue scattered across the state. And there's this, the suburbs are more, um, more consistently blue or purple, especially closer to the cities. Uh, whereas in Nashville, if you, if you cross that, that county line out of Davidson County, you're looking at deep red. Instantly um, red. Hmm. Yeah. Uh, I, most of the, I mean, not to get too much into the weeds, but like, you know, we're, we're, we're getting into a season of redistricting uh, all across the country. The districts in Tennessee for the, for, for, for the state house and for the uh, state Senate, they, they, they really practice uh, something called packing and cracking quite well, mm. where you, you pack voters of one alignment into a district or you, you crack them up into several different districts so that they can't really influence way. So maybe you've got like a big, uh, geographic area that has a lot of Democrats, you can either make that one district or, you know, two districts and try to keep them, you know, really dense, or you can slice, you know, here's a chunk that goes into this other area that's more robustly Republican and so on. And it, 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 uh, it, it happens all over the country, but in Nashville, just to give a picture, like when you cross that, that county line, you go from districts that are 70, 30 Democrat to districts that are 70, 30 Republican. Mm. Um, and uh, I think in a lot of things, like it, there's, there's a narrative and a community identity that goes with that, right? Um, when people become used to, and I think this, this plays out a little bit in, in Michigan in the Detroit area too, where you have these stories about like, well, those communities, you know, are this way and our community is this way. Um, and and it, there's an influence that works that way also. But that's not really what we wanted to talk about. <laughs> um, we, we wanted to talk about just like how, if, if I understood you right, uh, how these, these, what's going on politically broadly in, in the United States and how that plays out in the church. Is that right? Yes, but I think that covered a really, one of our, you know, things we wanted to cover, one of the things we want to talk about is your experience of politics, because I think yes. that experience definitely lends itself to this conversation we're having. And I think you kind of started talking about it, but why don't you continue? You know, one of the things we want to talk about is, you know, how would you even diagnose or describe the political situation in America? Because that definitely impacts the political situation of the church. Yeah, I'll finish answering the first question, which I just realized. My, my experience on these was I was field directing or or campaign managing a lot of these campaigns and so there's a lot of a lot of number crunching and like trying to figure out what the electorate looks like and who's going to bring them out and you know bring them out to the polls and 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 lastly like what kinds of talking points like what kinds of narratives are going to be persuasive uh a lot of face-to-face -face voter contact over those those five six years that i was doing that and it what it really paints to is points to for me is just like how nationalized our politics are and mm. how um how polarized they are i don't think it's anything new to say that our politics are very polarized that you know people have uh these these identities uh i guess you know sort of spoiler, these categories of republican or democrat have really become emotional identities that people that people bear right so the process of converting from one party to another, which is something that I did uh, in my, I mean, I'm still pretty young, but in my youth, the age of 23, and, and something that uh, there, were, there were a number of 
Obama Trump voters, you know, voters who, who initially voted for Obama and then voted for Trump. And that's sort of a phenomenon that gets studied a lot. But over time, uh, I mean, these, these categories become part of our identity, right? Um, there's been a lot of study that looks at, you know, what parts of the brain light up when you're, when you're thinking about a, part, uh, a, a politician or some political statement that was made by someone from your own party versus one that was made by someone from a different party. And uh, it's, it's not really, you know, on both sides, it's not really a logic-based conversation. It's really one that's about identity and emotion and affiliation, right? Where we, where we sense that we belong and who we see as speaking for us. And that, that really sheds light. Uh, one of the things that you hear people on the left talking about a lot, especially in kind of uh, post-mortems on elections, is the, the so-called white working class that, that votes against their self-interest. Uh, I think something that gets overlooked a lot is that self-interest is, is being defined very narrowly in terms of dollars and cents. And what's mm. being excluded from those calculations is that sense of emotional affiliation, that sense of narrative or the, the metaphors that we use for thinking about our life and the challenges we face. A writer that I think does a really good job uh, in a fairly recent book is Arlo Russell, Arlie Russell Hochschild, who is a, uh, I believe she's a sociologist out of UC Berkeley, where she teaches there. Mm -hmm. uh, she wrote a book a few years ago called Strangers in Their Own Land that really looks at the stories of these rural Louisianans who are living in, in land that has been uh, environmentally devastated by fossil fuel industries and yet continue to align themselves with a political agenda that uh, empowers these companies to, to continue to operate in that way, right? To continue to, mm -hmm. to devastate their environment. And, and some of these people even have, uh, you know, local environmental justice campaigns, like, and yet they continue to vote for it. So it's continue to vote for these politicians that enable these things. So it's a question of like, you know, yes, it's, there's, you know, you can look at it and say, oh, there's, you know, there's those those uh, white working class voters voting against their self-interest again. And then Russell Hochschild kind of digs into the story and says, like, well, what are the what are the stories? What are the narratives that these people are holding that that drive them to uh, continue to vote for people that uh, enable these these kinds of uh, environmental degradation and, and really be dismayed? Uh, when that happens, um, mm. you know, more recently, and to, to speak about a Michigan context, you know, over on the other side of the state, you've got the uh, the Kellogg strike. And uh, I don't know if this is still the case, but, you know, it's a it's a purplish area with some some pretty solid uh, Republican districts. A lot of the workers at that union are represented at the state and local level, uh, I should say, at the state level, you know, in, in the House and in the Senate uh, by Republicans. And yet it's, it's been overwhelmingly uh, Democrats that have been visiting them. And there's been sort of like, well, where are, where are our elected officials? Why aren't they protecting us? And not a lot of attention to historically, uh, Republicans have not aligned themselves with striking workers, making demands for higher wages or more benefits. That's not something that's really been a part of their, 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 their modus operandi. So there's, there's a, a, a perception of, of how they're being served in one way that has carried them to continue voting for these people 
and it didn't necessarily include an identity as workers, right? It included an identity as a person who is uh, grieved or who is being uh, one of the metaphors that uh, Russell Hochschild really lifts up is that people are are cutting in line, mm. um, hmm. right? Uh, the sense, of, sense that that one has has done everything correctly, and now there's these other folks that are being uh, directed to the front of the line by Uncle Sam, so to speak, and just the anger at that, which I think really speaks to how ineffectively uh, Democrats and, and the left more broadly, how ineffective they have been at uh, framing the issues, the, the framing the, the things that they want to pursue. In this case, we're talking more about uh, affirmative action or uh, wealth redistribution as something that uh, is just as opposed to, um, well, we're going to be nice to these people because they weren't, you know, they were being screwed over for a long time. Um, yeah. So, you know, where that leads us is like we have, and I think a lot of churches will be sort of evidence of this, is, is that we have two very different ways of, 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 of thinking and, and engaging in politics that don't really speak to each other. If there's, if it, feels like it's hard to have a conversation about politics with someone who has different politics than you it's because you're you're literally not talking about the same thing and that's you know that's something that again the the metaphors the the narratives that we choose really inform those uh the the the, the ways that we think about these things and so when we're the way this, this shows up in church is personally i think it makes it very hard to speak directly to anything uh, justice related or anything that that, that has been politicized mm, yeah. um, because we have such a a, a a a sharp reaction to that that again like because we're not talking about the same things uh, it, it's really hard to to slow down and attend to the stories that people are telling the things that are motivating for them the, the, the kind of Jonathan hate uh, is a, a wrote a book called The Righteous Mind. And uh, he, he looks at these different kinds of moral frameworks and he, he goes through and categorizes them. And there, there's, there's literally different kinds of moral appeals that you can make, right? So like uh, you and I might be talking about something and one of us makes an appeal to a principle of uh, fairness or, or uh, you know, kind of liberty. And another person might make an appeal to something like authority or, or sanctity you know something is sacred and we have to honor it you know a lot of the ways that we have conversations about the american military for instance uh can appeal to those kinds of values of of of, of sanctity right that, that there's something sacred about service in the military that uh demands are are honoring it demands are kind of respecting it right and so there's there's different moral frameworks we're often not using the same frameworks when we talk to each other you know so that, that raises the question of like how do we how do we have these conversations then in productive ways well you just made an interesting connection for me in regard okay, yeah, go ahead. to the way narrative is used in politics because mm-hmm. i've been i've been very interested lately in different conversations around narrative in the church and how we communicate narrative how we use narrative you know not even just you know in the way we tell biblical narrative stories, but the way we tell right. church narrative stories and, and faith narrative stories. 
So that that's actually quite a, I've never really thought about that connection between how dominant narrative can be in the political setting. Yeah. I mean, like there's this, um, you know, one of the, one of the things that gets lifted up a lot in the conversation around police reform, for instance, is a, the kind of narratives that get told to, by, and about police in this country. So the, there's, there's, one narrative that sees them as like kind of an occupying force. Actually, that metaphor gets used by a, a lot by both kinds of perspectives on the issue of, of, of police reform or police accountability. The argument is that, you know, when you have police that are carrying these lethal weapons that don't live in the district that they serve, like there can be sort of a, an us versus them mentality that can, can concretize very quickly. Yeah, they're very much sort the of, other. Right. And so this metaphor becomes, well, these are the the lawful ones that are, that means that everyone else must be, you know, potentially the dangerous ones, right? That the people that, that need to be controlled and surveilled uh, and, and put into, into line. And if they, if they buck that for any reason, then it, it sort of becomes a, a way of justifying, you know, physical force and seeing, seeing efforts to curtail that as sort of a, a nannying or sort of a, a softness. Uh, we want to be hard on crime. We want to be you know, fighting this battle. We want to be empowering the, the brave men and women that keep us safe. And it, it very quickly becomes sort of a militaristic language for something that, you know, also presents itself as being about serving and protecting the people. So the, the, the metaphors, the, the languages that we use are very important. Um, and I obviously I'm sort of uh, showing a lot of my own cards about my own political preferences and, and, and ideology but to take it back to the, the conversation of church is this you 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 mentioned in our conversation beforehand a lot of uh, pastors sort of uh, feel like they're very much to the to the to the left of their congregations or like uh, the 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 body of it is is sort of of a different ideology. Can you speak to that a little bit more? Yeah, I I recently had a conversation with another pastor in our presbytery where we were, you know, more broadly speaking, just about our kind of own feelings about certain issues. And I just kind of came to almost this moment of kind of fashion where I felt, you know, just, wow, I just feel so much more liberal and progressive than my own congregation. And she expressed that that is not only not unusual, but that is how most recent graduates from seminaries are feeling when they're encountering their first parish church setting that they, you know, they step into a church and they, you know, come to realize they're, you know, and a lot of times this doesn't seem to come out in sort of the call process that churches have, or maybe it does, but maybe it's not overt enough um, that it ends up being surprising. You know, what's your experience of this? Right. Yeah. You know, my experience is that that most most pulpits I have been in, I have uh, certainly been mindful of, of, of how I present certain certain issues, certain things I want to advocate on. Not to say that the pulpit is just for advocacy, but, uh, you know, when I'm talking about a justice issue or, or how uh, the gospel might call us to act on something, I have to. Yeah, I, I, I'm aware that the people sitting in the pews are are probably to my right, they're probably speaking a different moral and political language in their day to day. And part of my challenge is to, you know, say what I'm saying in a way that that can be heard. And also in a way that doesn't, 
doesn't elevate me above them or doesn't uh, cause them to to feel like I'm attacking them, them personally, right? Um, it's, it's, a, it's a call to action as opposed to a, a call to shame. Mm. But as far as, uh, you know, the, the, the phenomenon you were talking about with your friend of, of pastors, especially recent seminary graduates, feeling like they are uh, out in left field, uh, to be on the nose there with the metaphor, uh, it, it's, it's, a, it's a data, it's a, it's a, it's a demonstrated uh, phenomenon, right? Like they've studied it. Um, so two researchers, Eitan Hirsch, who is a, a professor at uh, Tufts over in, in uh, Somerville, Massachusetts, uh, that's not right, Medford, and um, Gabrielle Malina, who is a, a PhD uh, political scientist at Harvard, did a study that came out in uh, 2017 where they, they basically, they, they stripped church directories for congregants and pastors. And they did this for a, a number of denominations. And then they, they took that data, all those, those names and identifiers, and they ran it through something called Catalyst, which is a, a one of a number of kind of political data predictor softwares where it, it, it one of the, the things they were looking at specifically was registration uh, as Democrats versus Republicans, right? So they 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 did this for for pastors and for congregants, and then they they charted it. It's a really interesting graph. I'll send it to you. You know the share of party registration as Democrat over D plus R, right? So it's just the percentage registered as Democrat uh, for for the clergy and for the the congregants and for the Presbyterian Church. And, and they don't specify this PCUSA, but they have another Presbyterian denomination on there. I think they don't really understand the difference between uh, PCUSA and, and PCA or EPC. Yeah. But, uh, you know, it's right up there with Disciples of Christ, ELCA, Episcopal. So I think they're talking about us. We are about 30 points, 30 percentage points more progressive on an aggregate versus congregations. Mm-hmm. So, like, the average, like, for the national, like, national average for people they were able to match was about 70 percent d versus congregants which was about uh 42 right so almost almost twice as likely not quite twice likely but very nearly twice as likely to be democrat um it doesn't tell you how left people are it just tells you that on the whole like the clergy for our denomination for disciples of christ for the elca for the Episcopal Church, for the UCC, and a little bit true for the Methodists and American Baptists are just overwhelmingly more more left than their than their congregants, which you know is it's an interesting phenomenon. It's like how did it get to be that way? Um, I don't really have the the social psychology background to really comment on you know what is it about people who are called to be clergy in these denominations that makes them to the left of the people who are not, but are part of those denominations. But it, it, it does mean that like this problem of how to speak about justice issues or how to minister to your congregations across that political difference is one that is, is wide, widespread in our denomination and in those other denominations that I listed up. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, well, it's interesting talking about that too, because when I, I guess when I say liberal and progressive too, I, I think it relates both politically and theologically. 
So yeah. and, the, and theologically, I mean, there's a clear connection to the uh, just the amount of study and research that's available to you in some kind of a master's level seminary program across the United States. And then I guess that I'm sure that has a correlation or a relation to politics, um, but I'm, I'm also not qualified to, <laughs> to the, uh, clearly describe what's happened. No, I mean, I think that's that's right. And, uh, you know, again, I think that's maybe taking this data a little bit further than it, than it really can go. But if we're going to speculate wildly, I mean, uh, the Church of Christ, Southern Baptist, uh, Assemblies of God, Missouri Synod Lutherans, uh, Wisconsin Synod Lutherans, um, and oh, here's the PCA. Uh, they're all to the right of their congregants, right? So in those, in those denominations, the phenomenon is reversed or rather it, it goes the other way. Mm. Uh, and that, you know, again, like sort of makes sense in the, how, how, how those, the, 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 the polity the, of those the, churches, the, go. the theological, yeah. How the theology like correlates to the politics. Right. And what's interesting is like the PCA and the, the Presbyterian, which I presume to be the PCUSA, they don't really label it correctly. Those, those, the two dots there are within 10 points of each other. Mm-hmm. But the clergy, right, the, the, the congregate measure is within 10 points of each other, but the clergy measure is about 60 points apart. Wow. Mm. Right. So you've, you've got, you know, almost a 30 point split either way. Uh, and that, you know, just speaks to the, the, I know I just said we couldn't really comment it, but like, if I had to guess, I would say it's something about like committing your life to ministry along these theological points that are held up by the PCUSA or by the PCA really speaks to the kinds of, again, metaphors or narratives you have about the world and your place in it. Mm, and those yeah. two things are connected, right? About and scripture so you, and about God, all those, yeah, those different narratives. Yeah. Hmm. Right. So when you're really given over to those narratives, when you're really committed to, to serving, uh, serving God in a framework that understands and talks about God in a particular way. And that framework aligns with one or the other narrative frameworks that are used by the political parties that we have, or like the political ideologies to be even a little bit more expansive than just party. Those things are going to overlap, which isn't say that you can't have someone with a, a deeply conservative theology who is also on the political left like that, you know, that can happen, but it's, it's, much more frequent that those two things are going to align. I mean, there's also probably, I mean, you could say there's probably been considerable work on the political level to align themselves to certain theological frameworks, I imagine. I imagine that part of that narrative crafting at a certain level probably takes into consideration some of those theological views. Theological, but also like anthropological, right? Like who is it that we say human beings are? And what is, what is God's uh, response to human beings? So if God's response is one of uh, mercy and compassion, I mean, and, and every Christian theologian would say that God's response is mercy and compassion, but how that mercy and compassion is defined or what things are emphasized really points to different ways of thinking about what human beings deserve or what is, what is the right treatment of them and that that same anthropology plays out on political questions right like if we if we have this kind of um like if we have a theology that really locates 
takes locating sin in systems very seriously, then we might be more willing to also offer, say, a robust safe social safety net or uh, comprehensive benefits or active access to different programs, right? So those, those two things are not totally separate. But this leads us with the question of like, okay, so they're separate. What then do we do about it? Right? Like how, like we still have the problem that you, you, you know, when you, when you feel like you're very much uh, out in left field again, how do you, how do you preach in a way that's going to be heard and also be authentic? Right. Yeah. Uh, I think there's a lot of pastors out there who like navigating that dynamic is, is, is a, a, big big part of the weekly challenge of writing a homily mm, mm-hmm. i don't know is that been your experience of just like how do i how do i say what's true in my heart and also say it in a way that you know maybe on the lower stake side is is heard is is persuasive is is uh uplifting and also how does how do i say it in a way that doesn't get me fired right yeah um, yeah uh, or or somebody you know you know, writing an angry email to you. Right. And then, uh, and then that person, instead of, instead of being shepherded, instead of being pastured by you, whether they, they leave or whether they organize a campaign to uh, get you fired, you know, in both cases, like that's, that's a, that's a seed that's now fallen on, on rocky soil, right. To use a yeah. medical metaphor, it's, it's, that's not going to sprout. And so the question, I mean, like, I think it's an interesting question of like how much responsibility do we take as people who are, are spreading the seed of, of, of this gospel to, you know, are we, are we being careful to tend the soil that's been given to us? Or are we, you know, to what extent are we just throwing the seeds where we, where we can throw it? And if it grows great. And if it doesn't, then, you know, the spirit didn't intend for it to grow there. I think that's like a, a separate kind of question. But for me, I've always sort of presumed that it's it's part of our task is to ensure that every seed that we throw has the best chance of of of, of making the most of the soil that it lands in, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we're 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 if it's you know soil that's maybe not as accommodating to the the the, the seed that we're we're throwing there. You know, what can we do to 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 help that process along or what can we do to to break the metaphor to to meet that soil where it's at right um and i think that's where i would want to talk about something called uh deep canvassing which is uh a phenomenon being studied by you know brookman and kala who are those those uh two political scientists they they, they came up together at uc berkeley one of them's at berkeley one was at yale they really looked at how, uh, and this is where my political experience comes into play, is like persuasion canvassing, right? So like if you have a, a, a campaign, you have X number of voters, you want to reach them, you want to persuade them when you can, and then you want to make sure the ones that, that are aligned with you come out to vote. So there's a lot of attention being paid to that persuasion piece. And there's, there's really two kinds of persuasion, right? There's persuasion someone who's undecided about an issue. And then there's persuasion around like making sure the person who does align with you definitely comes out to vote, right? Yes. So there's, the, you know, persuasion and motivation, I guess. And what they looked at with their, with their a number of studies over the years uh, 
is how conventional talking points based persuasion canvassing works or you know to make a metaphor in church how arguing about one factor like literally how facts work in persuasion and what they found mm -hmm. is like they they really don't especially in situations where it's a partisan campaign right so if if there's already categories of identity that are being mobilized it's very very hard to make a fact or logic-based argument to persuade someone to leave one ideology for another. People are, are looking at the affiliation and sort of going from there. Now it's different when you have a referendum or maybe a local campaign that isn't closely tied to that, then you can, you can do a lot of effective persuasion uh, campaigning where you can go and talk about the merits of choosing one candidate or position on a referendum versus another. Um, but when something's really tied to a, an ideology or tied to an affiliation, it's much, much harder to do it. And so they started looking at different studies on how, how they might go about doing that. And they, they had a theory that if we looked at, if we talked about the stories, you know, and, and made a connection between the experience of a person who was being directly affected by one issue or another to the experience of the person who's, who's being persuaded, right? Uh, the subject of the persuasion conversation, that it might have a different outcome. And what they found through this process called deep canvassing, and they did studies in Florida, Tennessee, California. I was actually a, a part of the study in, in Tennessee uh, doing these kinds of conversations with just regular Tennesseans who had responded to a survey where we were in, in telling them stories about times that we needed help and asked them to tell a story about times they needed help and then connecting that time and then and then telling a story about someone's immigration story right so the issue we were campaigning around then was was immigration uh, attitudes about immigrants coming into this country and what they found was like when you when you mobilize story and when you make a connection to the the lived experience of that person to the immigrant experience, it does have an effect of moving people to be, have, have a more inclusive attitude, I guess is how we might frame it, to be, mm. to be more pro-immigrant or, or less anti-immigrant. And that that change was, you know, it, it did have a shelf life, but it, it, you could still measure it six months later. The ones, the, the, the voters who had or I should say respondents who had had the, the deep canvassing visit with the story, with the metaphor, versus uh, the ones who had kind of the conventional, here's some talking points about immigration. Do you agree with me? Yes, no. Um, and so what this really shows to me, thinking about congregations, right, to take it back to uh, ministry, is that when we, when we are talking about something that is uh, controversial or politicized, whether it's the, and, and certainly these are things that the, the, you know, our scripture speaks to, right? Immigration, racial justice, gender, working, workers' rights, like all these different topics. The, the Bible, we, we can find ways for, the, for scripture to speak to them. And yet it's, it's really important that when we do so, that we, we find a way that uh, people can see themselves in the story, right? Like even if we are doing a little bit of a, a more of a Nathan to David kind of moment than a, than a 
Moses to the Hebrews kind of moment. Mm-hmm. Uh, although I guess Moses, there's plenty of times that Moses is rebuking, rebuking the Hebrews. But that, 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 that there's sort of a, a, a mutuality in that, that we're, we're sort of all on the same side and, and, and not uh, feeding into this tendency that's trained to us by the way that we consume political media and by the way that, that our talking points in politics, uh, they, they, you know, this, you asked me earlier how I appraise it. Like we're very divided. It's, it's, we're consuming different media. We're consuming different narratives. And when, when you as a pastor in a homily or in a sermon step into that, that muck, it's very important that you do it in a way that, that helps people to feel not attacked, but like find their way into the story. Right. Mm. I don't think there's anything new, but it's, it's, a, it's a tricky thing to do. Yeah, it's not necessarily easy to navigate those different narratives. And that really does, I think, seem to be one of the experiences of young adults in congregations of encountering, you know, vastly different narratives, and vastly different beliefs. And I think that is a interesting way to frame it, of, you know, of stepping into the uh, of the other person's narrative, stepping into the, the muck of it, right? Really getting into it. Yeah. And, and, and how do they, how do they situate themselves in that narrative? Right. Because like, you know, and again, to go back to Arlie Russell Hotshot, like there's this story of, of being sort of cut in front of, right. There's a line to that American dream and uh, someone else is being lifted up in front of me and it's not fair. If, if we're talking about, you know, sort of a, a right-leaning perspective. But I, you, you mentioned in kind of our, our pre-show conversation, just the phenomenon, not just of, of clergy, you know, new, new seminary grads, but just young people in general, one, not necessarily participating in church to the same extent as their parents and their grandparents, and two, like having a more, being more likely to be, be progressive. There's the, the old adage that, you know, the idea that people get more conservative as they age, it's not holding out all the, all over the map, right? Uh, the, the millennials are not necessarily getting more conservative as they age, but they're also not, they're not going back to church quite as much. I think a lot of that has to do with just the different socioeconomic kind of phenomenon that they're having that, that you know, it's settling down, starting families, buying houses, having kids, is happening at later and later ages. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, there, there's, there's been more narratives about how one, what one's place in the world is that are, are having time to set in. And then they don't really make sense in the context of a lot of our churches, right. That are, that are really built around this kind of mid-century model of, of the family and of, mm-hmm. of, of how these, how this life together works. So yeah, there's the, the big generational difference currently existing in our churches and impacting the, you know, participation and desire for younger people to be involved in churches. Yeah, um, and, and a lot of that is just like, it's not, it's not a part of their story of how they make meaning in the world. And that's, that's yeah. uh, it's, it's something that we could, we could be angry about. Or we could ask, you know, how do we how do we meet this, these newer generations where they are and like what's important to them? 
and that you know it, it, it keeps going back to that same question of like what are the stories people are telling about the world and their place in it and how do we how do we connect to those stories yeah that is a big part of it well i think even sometimes just being able to frame a conversation is very helpful right (laughs) because sometimes the answer the solutions really elude us i think currently the solution to the the church's challenges is I think it's being well framed in a lot of different conversations, but the necessarily the the future, the way out, the change, that takes time to discover. Yeah, and and you know it, it's taking these two different narratives. I mean, like I don't want to paint so broadly as to say that older generations are conservative, younger generations are are, are progressive, because I don't think that's that's true across the board, but. You know, when you have these these two different, not just theological and political narratives, but just comprehensive stories about what the world is and how it's working and what one's place is in it, it can be really hard to bring that together into a, into a, a cohesive community. You know, especially again, like when we're used to consuming theological narratives, political narratives that that reinforce each other, right, and that that aren't uh, welcoming of of, of those other frameworks. So, so finding a way to, to, to not meet in the middle, but, but honor who people are and, and to, to engage at the level of story as opposed to at the level of, of identity, if that makes sense. That does. And I think that's, that does feel like something that's lacking from our current churches, the, uh, the ability of, you know, cause I, in my feeling, you know, I don't think, Avoiding conversations about politics is ever going to be helpful for the church. You know that uh, just keeping them out of the building will will solve the issue. But yeah, I think creating a space for those narratives to at least start to have some contact with each other feels important. Yeah, and and you know again, like we said, uh, like I said earlier, these these identities that we have about politics or about our our church, they're 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 very much caught up in who we are, who we say we are. And they're all equally drawing on, on uh, moral categories, not always the same moral categories, but there's, there's a concept of goodness. And so when I come in and uh, deny the righteousness of your uh, political, theological, uh, whatever identity, What's happening is not necessarily like a, a debate about ideas that we might imagine we're having or, or you know, what's factual and what's not. But we're actually, we're, we're, we're risking goodness, right? Like we're, what often ends up being perceived, experienced on an emotional level is that you are a bad person, mm. right? You are an unrighteous person. And that's yeah. a very unproductive place to engage. And that's where a lot of, that's where a lot of our, our theological and political conversations go. It's very hard to, to sit down and dispassionately argue these things when there's so much bound up in our idea of, of what justice is or how it is that we are living a just and righteous life. Very few people, uh, I mean, I should say that there are plenty of people with, with self-esteem issues or with moral compunctions where they, they think they're a bad person. But barring that kind of psychological uh, issue. Uh, most of us 
live our lives with the framework that we're we're basically good people who are doing just and good things. And when those when those different ideologies come to play or, or come into contrast with each other, what's being threatened is not just a an abstract political idea, but goodness, right? That the, the idea that you might not in fact be the hero of the story. Mm. Um, and that's really hard for people to take, especially in the context of church, where they where they go to uh, connect with God, where they go to hear the gospel message that they are they are loved. Now, there's also part of the gospel that, like all of us, have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and therefore, you know, it's just the redemption through Christ that we are reckoned as righteous. Which one would hope would mean we'd be able to enter in these conversations a little bit more dispassionately. Yes, and also like. You know, a little that's bit more grace. Of our, our humanness. Yeah, that's part of our humanness. Is that's still hard. So mm-hmm. I think you know that's probably the one of the strongest tools that I would lean on in a, in a homiletic sense is just that you know taking off that burden of of being right of being perfect, and which makes it a little bit easier to enter into some of these conversations with that curiosity and with the uh, the willingness to have been wrong. Right. Yeah, because no, there's not always narrative space for that, is there? No, and it, it, it's uh, it's nobody wants to identify with Paul, you know. No one wants to identify with Levi. Like it's, it's no one wants to be the person who was wrong, and then had to change of heart. We we always want to be the person who was who was right from the get go, and it's 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 very hard to create safety in a sense, given how absolutizing so much of our other media is about the rightness or wrongness of one ideology or another. Yeah, and it's interesting as you're saying that too, because I'm thinking there are so, there's so many more biblical examples of those being wrong <laughs> at first are not quite on the ball versus those who are instantly in the know, instantly right. I mean, even Jesus stumbles at some points in his ministry, right? I mean, the the Seraphonician woman is a, sure. a great a great example of you know Jesus even right. correcting himself and and saying you know oh you know what you know you are you know healed and you know <laughs> takes kind of takes back what he says. Yeah, I guess if I were going to add something to that, like then the takeaway is is showing modeling grace and and willingness to be corrected to self-correct to like undergo that process of correction as something that is joyful that leads us to improvement right to, to being closer to uh god to that that is part of the process of sanctification as opposed to everything that came before this was crap and <laughs> needs to be checked out you know so like how do we in addition to like using these 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 the language of story and metaphor and connecting people's experience to the experience of, of those that we're wanting to get to, to preach support for, right? I don't think I'm controversial for saying that a, a I'm going to say that a Christian congregation should be supportive of immigrants, should be supportive of people uh, seeking safety, seeking food, seeking shelter. Mm-hmm. Uh, that, that the Matthew 25 call to me is pretty clear about that. And yet, you know, how do we how do we make that clarity? without saying to every Christian who has objections or has qualms with it, that they're bad. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's, that's a hard, you know, that's a hard thing to do, but it, it, there's a narrative that they're, they're living in that they're telling about the world where these things make sense. And until we engage that narrative 
And until we like share about our narrative, instead of just making these fact-based arguments, we're not going to get anywhere. Yeah. So it takes both the, the compassion and the, and the modeling correction. Mm-hmm. Well, I guess uh, I think we've touched on all of our points. You know, is there anything else you could or, or could or want to say in closing this conversation? No, this is my, my first time, you know, talking about these concepts in this kind of format. So I appreciate you you walking me through this and helping me get through this. Thanks for having me. Oh, I appreciate you. I appreciate both your willingness to want to be in the conversation and to share about yourself. Well, good time. I, yeah, everybody, thank you for joining us for this Young Adults podcast in the Presbyterian Detroit. And thank you for listening.